This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Romans, chapter number 8. We're going to start in verse number 28, just because it's a really good verse, and read through the end of uh, the chapter. Romans chapter 8, verse number 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 29 tells us, why God created us, why we continue to live, to be like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of his son. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, he also called, whom he called, he also justified, whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Verses 31 and 32, I'd encourage you to circle those in your Bible because that's a great promise from God. If God is for us, who can be against us? And if God has given you his only son, what else would he possibly withhold from you? Verse number 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who's he that condemneth? It's Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Verse 34 is where we'll spend our time this morning. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember, for uh, my son Thatcher's fifth birthday party, we went to the skating rink, and we had a skating party for his uh, fifth birthday, and we were all excited about that. Thatcher, when he was a little guy, he's 27 now, he's a big dude now, but uh, when he was a little bitty guy, he had a speech impediment, and all of his R's were W's, and so if he's, his favorite animal was a rhinoceros, it was a rhinoceros, and he wanted to be a wino when he grew up, and so it was kind of cute and kind of funny, but it's also difficult if you have an R in your name when you can't say R's. And so when somebody would ask him what his name was, he'd say, well, my name is Thatcher. And it's like, Thatcher what? And he's like, yeah, Thatcher. And it's like, no, it's Thatcher. And so uh, he had trouble with that. And so at the skating rink, they, uh, had a, we had his party. We ran out the party room and all of this stuff. And they called all the birthday kids to the, the center of the skating rink to do like a little circle skate there and sing happy birthday to them. And so they called that name. Joey, come on out. Sally, come on out if you would. Thatcher, come on out. And that name just sticks out automatically anyways. That's my wife's fault, not mine. Uh, I'll, I'll take uh, credit or consequences for the other three, but the Thatcher was her idea. Uh, but um, so they had Thatcher come on out. And so he He's excited. He's a little bitty guy, five years old. He's, he's skating out there. And that dude can skate, too. Even to this day, he's got, he got some skating skills. So he's skating out there. He's all excited. And the guy with the clipboard leans down and uh, is talking to him. He says, hey, buddy, what's your name? He said, my name's Thatchua. And he was like, what? My name's Thatchua. And he goes, go back, buddy. This is for the birthday kids. And he's like, no, it's my birthday. And he goes, no, it's not. Go sit down, kid. 
And so he turns around and slumps his shoulders and starts skating back by himself. And it's just like, oh, no, no, no. So I run out there and I say, hey, hey, wait, this is his kid's birthday. So his name on the list. It's Thatcher. He goes, he didn't tell me his name was Thatcher. His name's Thatcher. It's his birthday. Sing the stupid song. He's like, all right, man, chill out. <laughs> Thatcher was struggling because he didn't have the tools and resources he needed to. Here's a good Bible word for you. Advocate for himself. Have you ever been in a situation where you had kind of exhausted all of your resources and you couldn't get done what you needed to get done, so you needed to enlist help from somebody else who would advocate on your behalf? Okay, fine. I can't take care of it. I'll go get somebody who can. One of the gifts that you and I have through the gift of Jesus Christ is advocacy. When you think of everything that Jesus Christ brings at Christmas, that baby in a manger and all the promise that was wrapped up in those swaddling clothes, we think of eternal life, yes. We think of a perfect sacrifice, yes. We think of a friend and a gift and uh, adoption and things like that. Advocacy is probably not one of the things that ranks high on your list of things that you got from Jesus, but it's something that you know that you need now that's really super duper important. Jesus needs to do things for you that you can't do for yourself. And the, the idea of another good Bible word that we're going to take a look at, three different words we're going to look at today, intercession, advocacy, and mediation. Those are three things that Jesus does for us. When we talk about intercession, it's the idea of intervening or pleading on behalf of another person. Sometimes when we talk about intercessory prayer, uh, that's the idea of you and I praying for other people. Uh, in our small groups. If you're not part of a small group, you should get in one this week. It's one of the best ways you get to know other Christians in our church and grow in your walk with Christ. But part of our uh, gathering time in our small groups is we share prayer requests because we want to pray for one another. And as I look across the room here this morning, I think of the dozens of people in this room that I prayed for by name this past week. And that's intercessory prayer where I'm going before God on your behalf and praying for God to do things for you. That's intercessory prayer. That's not what we're talking about this morning, but the idea is the same. Jesus Christ goes before the Father on our behalf and pleads our case before the Father for us on our behalf. And the Bible speaks of two primary places, two primary ways that Jesus intercedes for you and I. First and foremost, and probably the most important, because you can't have one without the other, is Jesus intercedes for us on the cross. The cross was a place where Jesus did something for us who went on our behalf, not because he needed to or because it was his fault, but he came on our behalf. And it's really important to understand. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment that every single one of us will die, will stand before God, and God will judge us all, every single one of us. And some people might think, well, I hope I do enough. The, the criteria for God's judgment have already been predetermined. And here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says that there's none righteous, no, not one. And the Bible says that the wages of your sin, the wages of my sin, is death. We deserve to die because we've sinned against God. Now, it's not just a physical death. It's also a spiritual death where we're punished for our sin. You can't have a law without consequences. There must be consequences when you break God's law. And God says, you break my law, you deserve to go to hell. So, according to the Bible, every person who has ever sinned against God deserves 
punishment by God and God's predetermined punishment for every human being is hell. Now, God loves you too much to allow you to go to hell without another option. God loves you too much to just be full of wrath and full of judgment and full of payment and penalty. God loves you so he sent his son Jesus to die in your place. So so simple, our kids can sing about it. So simple that we can sing about it together congregationally. That Jesus Christ came to die for my sins and to die for your sins. The Bible makes it clear like this. He who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus came and became sin. He took upon the penalty of my sin and yours. And because of that, God punished his son, Jesus, in my place, in your place. And again, if you want to be, uh, uh, go and look up some good Bible terms, theological terms, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That means Jesus died in my place to make peace with God. We can also say that he, he was a vicarious atonement, meaning he died in place of me. But the, the simple answer is this, Jesus died for sinners. Now, you've got to make a decision for yourself. This forgiveness that God offers, you have to be willing to receive. I can wrap you up the most beautiful Christmas presents you've ever seen in your life and slide it across the table. But if you don't receive it, open it, and take it home with you, the gift sits on the table unopened. Jesus Christ offers you forgiveness. I've already died in your place. I've already done the hard work. I'm willing to offer you forgiveness if you're willing to receive it. And all you have to do is believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Believe that Jesus has paid the penalty of your sin and receive it by faith and by repentance. That word repentance means believing that you've wronged God and asking God to forgive you of your sins. That's the way that you can make it right. And Jesus says in John chapter three, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Friend, you need a time, a date, a place where you've received that forgiveness once and for all and receive Jesus Christ as your, your personal Lord and personal Savior. And if you've done that, all of your sins are forgiven and Jesus Christ has came and made a way for you before the Father to be received into the family of God and to become a child of God. And that's the primary place that we see Jesus interceding for us. But you see, in the Old Testament, it was a little bit different. The Old Testament, it was the responsibility of the priest to approach God on behalf of the people. There was another person who would intercede in the Old Testament and that was the high priest a little bit of a history lesson in the Old Testament. Uh, the children of Israel wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. And as they wandered from place to place, they needed a place where God's spirit could come down and dwell with his people. And so they put together a tent, also referred to as a tabernacle. And this tabernacle is a place where God's spirit would come down and dwell with his people. And whenever they moved from place to place, they'd pack up the tent or the tabernacle. God's spirit would go back up until they got to a different place, set up the tabernacle. God's spirit would come down again. Inside the tabernacle was a special room called the Holy of Holies. It's the the most holy place that was ever on planet Earth because that's the place where the Spirit of God would come down. And it was, was walled off by a really thick curtain or a veil that before a priest could go in, he had to first cleanse himself. Now, if you or I tried to walk into the Holy of Holies, we'd be struck dead in the presence of God because we could not come to God. Only the priest, the high priest, could come to God. 
And before the high priest could come to God, he had to make a sacrifice and atone for his own sins. He had to confess everything under the sun that he knew that he had done wrong. He had to even actually be from a certain tribe, the tribe of the Levites, a priestly tribe. So you had to be from the right family at the right time with the right job. You had to be cleansed of your own sin before you could ever even walk into the presence of God to make sacrifice for the people. And so the high priest was the one that did that. And the high priest would go in on the day of atonement and he would make sacrifice for the people. And so it would be the priest who would go and offer sacrifice to God on behalf of the people. And so we talked about this last week, how uh, there would be two animals that were taken in, either goats or sheep, and they'd be taken in, and one of them would have the sins of the people confessed over it. And then the blood would be shed and poured out upon the mercy seat or the top of the Ark of the Covenant as a covering for sin, where we get our beautiful Bible word, propitiation. And then the other one would be the escape goat where the sins of the people confessed upon that and that goat would be sent out into the wilderness never to be seen ever again was a picture of how God would cover the sins of the people with blood and he also send the sins of the people away never to be heard of ever again. And that was a picture of God's forgiveness. And so the priest would transfer the guilt of the people to the sacrifice that was to be made. Leviticus chapter uh, 16, verse number 21 it says, Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And so once the sacrifice had been made, the priest then deemed those who offered the sacrifice absolved of all guilt. Okay, you've made sacrifice. God has seen the sacrifice that we made and your sins have been forgiven. All the guilt that you have for the wrong that you've done has been taken care of because a sacrifice has been made. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29 says, this shall be a statute for you uh, forever unto you. That in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls, do no work, whether it be one of your own country, a stranger that sojourneth among you. Hey, on a regular basis, you're going to need to come back here and make atonement for your sins. Make things right with God. Now, I've sometimes referred to the book of Leviticus as the widow maker of the one-year Bible reading program. Because you start reading the book of Genesis, it's exciting. God creates, you got Adam and Eve, you got uh, Abraham and Sarah, you got Isaac, and you got all these great stories, and you got Joseph in the coat of many colors and sold into slavery, and there's a famine, and his brothers come back, and he's the, the second in command of Egypt. Awesome story. You got the book of Exodus, you got Moses, who's a murderer, but God ends up taking this murderer back and using him for good. Hey, he has a speech impediment, he can't talk good, but God says, I'm going to take you, and I'm going to take your brother, and you're going to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he parts the Red Sea, and uh, the Egyptians. Egyptian army are flooded and drowned in the sea. And then you got the story of how they wander in the wilderness, whether or not they can trust God or trust God's promises. Then Moses dies, and you get to the book of Joshua, and Joshua takes over for Moses, and he begins to lead the children of Israel. He gets to get them fired up, and hey, I don't know about you, but for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. You're like, yeah, Joshua. You get to the book of Judges, and there wasn't a king in the land at the time, but they had judges that God set up, and he put his spirit with these people. And there's a, a judge by the name of Samson who was like judged like none other. You read the story of Samson. The Bible is such a fascinating book. What's next? The book of Leviticus. This is like a bunch of rules and guidelines and stipulations. And if you sin this way, here's the sacrifice you need to make for that. And you get about four chapters deep, and you're like, is the whole book like this? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. 
And I can't tell you how many times I've gotten to the book of Leviticus and go, can I just skip this? I know that all the Bible's good, but like this is just dry. Like I want to get to the good stories of the Bible. But the book of Leviticus is there. And so if you are strong enough to make it through the book of Leviticus and you make your way out to the book of Numbers, which is good. Again, good stories in there. The children of Israel go over the Jordan River and they fight over there and they take the land that's for them. And then once they get over into the promised land, then comes the book of Deuteronomy. And for those of you who don't know, the word Deuteronomy literally means second law giving. In other words, it's a rehash of Leviticus. Hey, don't forget the law that I gave you before. And again, it's statutes, it's, it's rules. It's about as exciting uh, as reading the end user licensing agreement for any software that you install. It's just like, uh, okay, I, I guess I should read this. It's probably important, but I don't really see the benefit of it. And you read the book of Deuteronomy, and you're like, okay, that was good. Let's just get on to the good stuff. But hold up for just a second. I would highly encourage you, if you've been like me and got stuck in Leviticus or even Deuteronomy and like, ah, do I really need to read this? Read it in conjunction with the book of Hebrews. Because here's what Hebrews says. Hebrews says that Jesus Christ was the sacrifice, but he was also the high priest. And so now we get to go back and read the book of Leviticus, and whenever it talks about the priest, it's actually talking about Jesus, Whenever it talks about a sacrifice that needs to be made for sin, it's actually talking about Jesus because Jesus became the, the, took on the role of both the sacrifice and the priest at the same time. And so now when we look back at the, the book of Leviticus and it says, oh, if you steal from your neighbor, here's how to make it right with your neighbor and here's the sacrifice you need to make and here's how uh, it needs to be resolved with your neighbor and here's what restoration looks like. We don't need that anymore because Jesus has already made the one perfect sacrifice. I don't have to go back and look at the Levitical law to find out what I've broken and how to make it right. I don't have to wait for a priest to make things right between me and God. The Bible says that Jesus has become my priest. I can go to him directly to make things right, and I don't have to sacrifice an animal because the Bible says that Jesus has already made a perfect sacrifice on my behalf. Turn your Bibles over to Hebrews chapter 4. This is really good. It might be in your notes, but I want you to see it with your own eyes, eyeballs in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number um, Let's back up to verse number 12, because verse 12 is good. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12. For the word of God is quick. That word quick means it's alive. The, 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 the Bible, the word of God is a living book. And it's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit. And the joints and marrow, and there's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So in other words, the Bible is a book that's alive that will point out in you every single shortcoming and every single flaw that you have. The Bible will make it apparently clear for you. Neither is there any creature that's not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In other words, you can't hide from God. God knows everything. God sees your heart. There's nothing that you can uh, keep from God. God knows it all. And the Bible exposes it for you and I to be able to see it. Verse number 14 is an awesome uh, thought. Seeing that we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's a great thought. 
we have a high priest in Jesus Christ that we don't have to wait for him to make sacrifice for us. The sacrifice has already been made. We don't have to go to him once a, a year to make things right. We can go to him anytime. And because we have a high priest who has walked in our shoes, who knows what it's like to live our life, we can go to him with whatever we need. And we don't have to be kept outside of where God's spirit is, the holy of holies. We're actually invited into the throne room of God. Now, verse number uh, 16 let us come boldly, therefore, to the throne of grace that we may find help in time of need. We're not kept on the outside because we can't get inside. No, we're allowed access at any time. And here's a great thought, too. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle went from place to place. It was a tent that they set up where God's Spirit would come down and dwell with His people. God uh, allowed the children of Israel, against His advice, to create themselves uh, kings and a kingdom. God wanted to be their king, but they said, we want a king like everybody else has. So they anointed Saul as the first king of Israel. Saul blew it. And so then they anointed David. And David says, God, I've got a really nice house, but you don't have a house, and I want to build you a house because you deserve it. And God told David, David, you can't build a house. You shed too much blood, but I'll allow your son Solomon to build me a temple, build me a house that I can permanently dwell in, and... You can prepare it. So uh, David basically put together all the, the financing and materials and stuff like that to make the temple happen. Solomon built the temple, and when the temple was built, man, they made a massive sacrifice to God as an act of worship and joy and praise to God, and they opened up the temple. Fast forward to uh, after Christ ascends into heaven, and the temple in Jerusalem is torn down and no longer exists. And believe it or not, if you've ever had the opportunity to go to Jerusalem, sitting where God's temple used to sit, does anybody know what's there? A Muslim mosque, the Dome of the Rock. And so you might look at that and you go, how blasphemous that a, a, a false god would claim the seat of our God, right? But hold up for a second. Do you think that God's upset about that? Does God's temple... Now no longer have a place. God's just kind of sitting around. His spirit doesn't know where to go because he doesn't have a place for his spirit to rest. Where is God's temple now? Anybody want to help me with that? In us. What, know you not that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost? That the spirit of God lives in you? That now the temple is found in every single person that calls himself a Christian. The Spirit of God resides in us. God's not up in heaven like, oh, I wish I had a place for my spirit to rest. I guess I'll wait until they rebuild the temple. God's like, you can have that spot. There's nothing special about this spot because my spirit will now reside in every single believer. The Spirit of God now resides in you. But here's the thing. This body that we're in, it's only temporary. That's why, this is how beautiful the Bible is when you understand it. The Apostle Paul says in this earthly tabernacle that we have here. You know why? Because the tabernacle was temp temporary. It was the tent that would get packed up and then move from place to place. This, this temple that we have, not really 100% a temple, it's more of a tabernacle because when this body passes away, my spirit will live in heaven with God and will forever be in the presence of God for all of eternity. Wow, that's going to be incredible. And so Jesus Christ has taken upon this role of both priest, high priest, and sacrifice at the same time. 
And so Jesus interceded for us on the cross by becoming the perfect sacrifice, by becoming the perfect high priest. But Jesus Christ also intercedes for us in heaven as well. We took a look in the, this passage uh, this morning in Romans chapter 8. It says that he maketh intercession for us. One author put it this way. I, I used to think this way when I was a kid. And when you're a kid, I don't think you really uh, fully grasp everything the way that you should. And maybe some of you think this as well. That when we speak of Jesus Christ interceding for us, or that Jesus Christ is our advocate or our mediator. And when I was a kid, I used to think this thought in my mind, that Jesus is sitting beside God in the throne room of God, which he is. But I thought that it was like this. Jesus was like, hey, God, just dial it back a notch. Anthony's getting it together down there. You know, give him some grace. You know, that he's advocating, kind of trying to talk God down from just completely and totally obliterating my life or hitting me with a lightning bolt. That, that, that Jesus is trying to advocate on my behalf, like, hey, he's not that bad of a guy. Just cut, cut him some slack. Give him a break. But that's not the case at all. God the Father already knows what God the Son, Jesus Christ, has done. And one author put it this way. I thought it was so beautiful the way that he said it. He said, our Lord's intercession is not so much in what he says as in what he is. He pleads by his presence on the Father's throne. And he is able to save them to the uttermost through his intercession because of his perpetual life, his inviolable, undelegated, intransmissible priesthood. That Jesus, just by being at the right hand of the Father, is a constant reminder that my sin has already been forgiven. That I don't need anybody to come between me and God on my behalf. It's already been done by Jesus Christ. I don't need a priest to go to to talk to God for me. God the Son sits at the right hand of God the Father as my high priest. He's there on my behalf. That if I need something from the Father, he makes it available for me to talk to the Father. And Jesus is the only intercessor that we have. He's the only intercessor that we need. Uh, if you're there, still there in Hebrews for just a second, turn over to Hebrews chapter 7, if you would. Verse number... Hmm, take a look at verse number 19. Hebrews chapter 7, verse number 19. Hebrews chapter 7, verse number 19, for the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by which we draw nigh unto God. So the Bible tells us here in verse number 19 that the law didn't bring any hope, it really just brought judgment. God has these rules that I'm supposed to follow that I can't follow. God has these commandments, even if there were only 10 of them, which there's more than 10, but if even though there's only those 10 that he gave to Moses, I can't even follow one out of the 10. And so the law brought no hope. See what verse number 19 says. But the bringing in of a better hope did, by which we draw nigh unto God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for sinners. Inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made a priest, speaking of Jesus. For those priests, other than Jesus, were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent that thou art a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So he made Jesus Christ a priest for us. Verse 22, so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. The word the testament means covenant. And so Jesus became the bond 
of a new covenant that we have with Jesus Christ. You might remember a few months ago we talked about the different covenants that the Bible talks about. First of all, there's the Abrahamic covenant that God promised to Abraham land, a seed, and a blessing. Those are the three things that he promised him, and I'm going to make a great nation of you forever. Abrahamic covenant. Davidic covenant that was given to David. Upon your throne shall someone rule for all of eternity. Speaking of Jesus Christ, that Christ would rule on the throne of David. That's the Davidic covenant. Now, unless you are a Jew, you were left out of those covenants. Those didn't apply to you whatsoever. But Jesus Christ, when he died upon the cross... And at his last supper with the apostles, he said to them, this is my cup of the New Testament or the New Covenant. The New Covenant says that all that come to Jesus Christ by faith and repentance are now adopted into the family of God. You weren't part of the family of God before, but you are now. And now this new covenant allows you and I, non-Jews, to be a part of the family of God, to be God's chosen people, to be grafted into the family tree of God when we didn't belong there to begin with. That's what the new covenant does for us. And Jesus becomes the overseer, the bond of the new covenant, verse number 22 says. And it goes on. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. Hey, we've had a lot of priests throughout the history because they have a habit of, what does it say? Dying. They, they all died. All the priests we've had, we've had a lot of them, and they can't continue to serve because they die. But this man, verse number 24, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them, not just until this time next year, but to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such is a high priest who became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher from the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Interesting thought here. Jesus is better than any high priest has ever been before. Why? First of all, because he didn't die and he's still in the office of a high priest forever. And he'll stay there forever. Secondly, when Jesus made a sacrifice, he didn't have to cleanse himself of his own sin first the way that other priests did. Which is interesting because priests couldn't go into the Holy of Holies unless a few things happened first. First, they had to make a sacrifice for their sin. Second of all, they had to wash themselves from head to toe ceremonially. Thirdly, they had to put on priestly garments. What do the priestly garments look like? Well, if you read the book of Leviticus, you would actually know what they look like, right? Then they had to put on their priestly garments. And then once they were clean, head to toe, every sin under the sun confessed, washed appropriately, then they could cross the threshold into the Holy of Holies. But you see, our high priest didn't have to do any of those things. He was actually beaten within a half inch of his life. He was actually covered in his own blood and his own tears. He was actually stripped naked and crucified and nailed to a cross. He wasn't ceremonially cleansed from head to toe. He hung there naked and open before the world, covered in other people's spit, having his beard plucked out. Why? Because he needed no sacrifice for his own sin. 
because you can't get cleaner than God himself. You can't cleanse perfection. He needed no sacrifice for his own sin. And so when he offered up a sacrifice, it wasn't for him. It was for the sins of the entire world. I love verse number 28. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. In other words, the law hired sinners to be high priests. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. Hey, look, folks. We now have one and only high priest and his name is Jesus. We don't need any more priests. We now have a sacrifice once and forever. We need no more sacrifice because our high priest makes intercession for us. He's already made the sacrifice. He's already become the priest on our behalf. And the fact that Jesus Christ's sacrifice is once and for all means we don't need additional sacrifice for our sin. And again, if you try to, I want you to get this today. If you have to add anything to the sacrifice of Christ, all you're doing is mocking the suffering of Jesus. Can you imagine the priests in the Old Testament had laid the sins of the people upon these two animals? He'd slit the throat of one of them, he bled it out over the top. And, and then the other animal was sent to the people, placed them on it, and sent out into the wilderness. And some guy walks in the temple and goes, oh, by the way, I got a bundle of sticks I want to throw in there on the sacrifice. Could you throw those on there for me? He'd be like, what are your sticks going to do? Hey, I found this old apple core out there on the, on the ground. I think I'm going to throw that in there. Hey, I haven't emptied out my trash. Could you throw my trash on there? He'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't defile something that's so holy. But many times, false versions of Christianity want to take the sacrifice of Christ and throw things like baptism on top of that that really makes the sacrifice worthy. The sacrifice of Jesus is worthy on its own. We don't need to add anything from you or I to that sacrifice. And once I add in church attendance or being really good or taking communion or being baptized or taking a class in church, and I add that to the sacrifice to make the sacrifice better, I've completely and totally annulled the sacrifice of Christ. It's of no use. It's of no good. And it's the height of arrogance to think that you and I can add to the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God. It's perfect. It doesn't need any addition from you and I. The Bible also tells us that we only have one intercessor. We don't access the Father through relatives, through saints, through angels, or through Mary. You need access to the Father. Jesus Christ has made a way for that. I was talking with a man several years ago. We were going through, uh, he came from a Catholic background and, and went to a Catholic high school, went to a Catholic college, had the opportunity to sit down and share the gospel. And we were at the, there's a Mexican restaurant like two doors down from Aiea Bowl in Aiea. And we were sitting there uh, eating tacos and talking about Jesus. And man, that's a good day, right? Eating tacos and talking about Jesus is a good day. We were talking about it. And so I always asked him questions about Catholicism. And this guy, he knew his stuff. And so I said, uh, explain to me why you pray to Mary. I said, how does that actually help us? First of all, how is it biblical? Second of all, how does it help us? Well, the Bible tells us that, that Mary is blessed and favored of God. Okay, I'll give you that. But the Bible also says that all Christians are blessed and favored of God as well. So that doesn't really put Mary in a unique category other than the fact that she was chosen by God for a unique task. But you and I are also chosen for a unique task. So it doesn't put her higher than anyone else. And he says, oh, well, well Catholics don't put Mary higher than anyone else. Well, 
I happen to have read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, who calls Mary, first of all, the mother of God. Second of all, or first of all, God didn't need a mother. He is pre-eternal, pre-existent of everything. He was never created, therefore he didn't need a mother to be created. So to call Mary the mother of God is a, is a slap in the face to the personhood of God. Second of all, the, the Catholic Church calls Mary the mother of the church, which she is not the mother of the church, according to anything that we find in Scripture whatsoever. Thirdly, uh, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, she calls Mary the co-redemptrix, that Jesus needed help redeeming you and I, so he used Mary to help him. Again, we don't find that in Scripture. That is anti-biblical. That is anti-Christ. And he goes, oh, okay, I can't, I can't argue with you on any of those. He said, but let me just explain to you how I understand or how, how I view it. I feel like if Jesus is going to listen to anybody's prayers, he would listen to his mom. And so if you want to get Jesus' attention and you're not getting the answer that you want, you can ask his mom. <laughs> Wait, what? You're saying that if Jesus doesn't hear your prayers, ask his mom. His mom's like, what, going to put pressure on him? And he goes, well, well, yeah, I mean, she does that. Uh, I, don't, I don't buy that. He goes, no, when you take a look at the, the wedding feast where Jesus did his first miracle, she said, hey, they're out of wine. He says, my time's not come yet. And she said, well, if you would do it, that would be nice. And she asked him to do it, and what did he do? He did it. Okay, first of all, we never build doctrine based on narrative stories in the Bible. Let that just be a, a, a hermeneutical tool for you, a way that we understand the Bible. You never build doctrine based on a narrative or a story. It's like saying, if I need to split uh, the Alamona Beach Park, I'm gonna take a stick out there and hit the, the water and it's just gonna split for me and I can walk to California. It, God doesn't work that way. We don't build doctrine based on stories or narratives in the Bible. I mean, that doesn't even hold water, man. And he goes, well, I just, I just feel like it could help. And he goes, and that's kind of the thing that we're, we're not praying to the saints, we're praying with the saints. And that goes, that answers, uh, causes me to ask another question. Why do we pray to saints? Well, there's certain saints that have certain specialties uh, that if, if Jesus is busy, these guys can kind of help out on his behalf. So Jesus is so busy, he's got so much going on that he just can't get to everybody well, yeah, it's kind of like that. You have denied the omnipotence or the all-powerfulness of Christ by that statement. And again, the more that you dig into it, it's just blasphemous at the core. Now, is it funny that there's like a, a, a patron saint of lost things? That's funny to me. There's a patron saint of, of gamblers. There's a patron saint of criminals. And there's a patron saint of all these other things. Why don't we just have one person that we can pray to who takes care of everything? That's what we have, Jesus Christ. And again, the idea of praying to uh, a relative that, that's in heaven, that, oh, they can uh, do something on my behalf. Hey, look, I'm not going to pray to my grandma that she can get stuff done for me. I'm going to pray to the sinless son of God who sits at the right hand of the Father who forever maketh intercession for me. That's who I'm praying for, not through some archangel or some relative or anything else. There's one intercessor for us, and it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is also the only mediator. The idea of a mediator is one who makes peace between two parties. We have a couple of men in our church that serve as arbitrators. It's kind of the same thing. You've got two parties that don't see eye to eye. We're going to sit down with them, hear both sides, and try to find some level of peace between these two parties. Jesus is the mediator on our behalf. We don't have the ability to make peace with God. 
You want to make peace with God? You do things his way. Okay, how is that? You pay the consequences of your sin. That's how you make things right with God. But Jesus came and became a mediator who stand in the middle, who's willing to make peace by his own death, by his own sacrifice, by his priesthood to allow you and I to come to God to make a right relationship with him. Jesus mediates or finds peace on our behalf. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 5, there's one God and one mediator between God and men. That's the man Christ Jesus. Peter, as he's preaching in Acts chapter 4, verse number 12, says, Neither is there any other name given under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. And that name is the name of Jesus. One author explained it this way, and I, I love this picture. Speaking of Jesus Christ as a bridge, to be of any use, a bridge across a chasm or river must be anchored on both sides. Christ has closed the gap between deity and humanity and has crossed the Grand Canyon so deep and wide between heaven and earth. He's bridged the chasm that separated man from God. With one foot planted in eternity, he planted the other in time. And he was the eternal son of God and became the son of man. And across this bridge, the man Christ Jesus, we can come into the very presence of God knowing that we are accepted because we have a mediator. So we have God the Father. who God the Father has very briefly been on planet earth. If you know in the Garden of Eden, the Bible says that he walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He stood face to face with Moses and Moses says, let me see your face. And God says, you can't see my face. I'll let you see my back as I walk away, but you can't see my face. You'll die. And so Moses saw God's back and his his face shone so brightly they had to put a bag over his head or a veil. And so God briefly, God the Father has been on this earth. But here's the thing. God the Father hasn't walked the same path you and I have walked. He hasn't experienced the same things that you and I have. God the Father is disconnected from this earth in a physical sense. But God the Son, he's walked everything you and I have walked. He's been tempted in exactly the same way that you and I have been tempted, yet he's been without sin. He's walked a mile or two in our shoes. He's had people disappoint him. He's had people tell lies about him. He's had friends stab him in the back. He's had people say things about him that weren't true. He actually ended up going to court for something that he didn't do, losing and then being put to death. He knows all about suffering, trust me. He's lost close family members that he cried. He's been hungry before. He's been tired. He's gotten frustrated with people because they couldn't get their act together. He's been through it all, but without sin. But he's also experienced the joys of heaven. And he chose to leave the joys of heaven to come to this earth to be born in a manger, a poor kid's birth, for the purpose of making a bridge for you and I to come to God the Father, to be our mediator, to bring peace between us and God. But Jesus Christ is not only our mediator, he's also our only advocate. The idea of an advocate is one, it's a judicial term, one who speaks on your account or on your behalf in your defense. And it's interesting, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse number uh, 24. Let's take a look at that. If you're in Hebrews, still turn over to Hebrews 9, uh, 24. For Christ has not entered, Hebrews 9, 24, for Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands. He didn't come into a, a, a temple, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, 
now appearing to us the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as a high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. Jesus didn't have to go back again and again and again to make sacrifice. Verse 26, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath appeared and put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse number 26 is so powerful because at the end it says he has put away sin. He has finished sin. He has defeated sin. He's made an end of it altogether. Why? How? By the sacrifice of himself. As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look to him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So Jesus, the Bible says here, is our advocate. He's gone into heaven on our behalf. And here's the interesting thing about the advocacy of Christ. And again, judicial term, one who pleads your innocence before a court. That when Jesus is our advocate, if you can imagine hiring a defense attorney, you've broken the law, you hire a criminal defense attorney, you go to court to make your plea agreement, and you think to yourself, here's this lawyer that's going to get me off from this and, and, and make my case before the court. And imagine this, your defense attorney stands up and he says, your honor, my client is 100% guilty of everything that you're charging him with. He enters a plea of 100% guilt. He's probably more guilty than you know. And oh, that's our plea today. You look and you're like, Bro, what am I paying you for? What kind of advocate is this? Like, you're supposed to, like, plead my case. Jesus, get this. Jesus doesn't plead your innocence. He pleads your guilt. Jesus stands before the Father and says, Anthony is 100% guilty of everything that he's charged with. But his payment has been made in full by me. That's his advocacy. Not that you and I aren't guilty, but that we are 100% blood guilty of what we've done. But the price, the sacrifice, the atonement, the propitiation for our sins, it has been completed by Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ stands as our advocate. If you remember 1 John chapter 2 that we looked at last week, uh, 1 John chapter 2 says that he's the propitiation for our sins and not our sins only, but the sins of the entire world. The verse right before that, you know what it says? If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. <laughs> if any man sin, <laughs> yeah, that's what we do. Sinners gonna sin. But guess what? Don't sweat it. Because we have an advocate with the Father who not only has advocated on our behalf, pled our guilt, pled our payment, but he's also the propitiation, the covering, the satisfactory payment that turns away the wrath of God on our behalf. Oh man. Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 24, for Christ is entered into the holy places not made with hands which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, and now appear in the presence of God. Why? For us. And again, the, the verse that we saw in Romans, he liveth forever to do what? To make intercession for us. He's the conduit that gives us access to the Father, because you and I don't deserve to be in the Father's presence. But Jesus has made a way for us, and the gift that Jesus Christ has given to us by his presence is his advocacy. And again, it might be one of those gifts that you're like, oh, wow, great, Jesus got me advocacy. What does that mean? That means more than you could possibly fathom. 
that not only are you and I adopted as sons and daughters, not only are our sins covered in the wrath of God turned away by the satisfactory payment of the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, but now we have someone who forever has a connection between us and the Father forever. So that God's ear is not turned away from my prayers. They go through His Son on behalf of me. Here's what Jesus said to His apostles, and He says it to you and I. If you ask anything of the Father in my name, He'll do it. Why? Because we have an advocate with the Father. We have one who makes intercession for us. And sometimes we, we think of like, I'm going to pray in Jesus' name. We think of tacking Jesus' name on the end of all of our prayers. That's not what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Lord, give us a great day and bless us and help us to enjoy life and have a good Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen. And kind of like throw that in before amen. That's not what it means to pray in Jesus' name. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray understanding that it's not based on our authority, but it's based on Jesus' authority. I'm asking this only because Jesus told me that I could. One of my friends is, is a basketball coach. He's got me tickets to a basketball game sometimes. If I walk up to the front box office and say, hey, let me in for free, they're going to say, get lost. It's $10 a person. No, I want to get in for free. I don't care what you want. There's a price that needs to be paid. But if I say, hey, coach told me that he left some tickets here for me, everything changes. Why? Based on whose authority I'm asking on. I'm not asking on my authority. I have no authority at the box office. I'm asking on coach's authority. Who has authority at the box office? You see the difference? When we pray to God, I don't have the ability to ask God for anything. I am a wretched sinner who has broken his law, who is in danger of his wrath and judgment. I don't have the capability to ask of anything on my own will, of my own power. That's why Jesus says, ask in my name, and the Father will give it to you. Why? Because I've made a way. I've bridged the gap between you and God. I've made a satisfactory payment so that you can be brought near to the Father and not treated as outsiders any longer, but treated as sons and daughters. And just know this this morning, if you're a child of God, Jesus has made a way for you to be made clean. And that's through the blood of his Son. Every wrong thing you've ever done can be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Peace can be made between you and God only through Jesus Christ. You can't make enough sacrifices. The Bible tells us again in the book of Hebrews, we don't have time to look at it tonight, but the blood of bulls and goats could never wash away our sins. Never. You could sacrifice 10 times a day for the next 50 years. You'll never cover your sin. Because there's been a sacrifice that has put away all other sacrifices. And that's the blood of Jesus. And so if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you've been saved or born again, put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior today. He alone can save you. But let me say this too, that if you're a child of God and you've been struggling with sin, the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can make you free confession of sin and repentance. You might say, oh, I feel really terrible about what I've done. I feel this heavy weight of guilt. Hey, the blood of Jesus sets you free from that guilt. Jesus already bore on that cross my guilt, my shame, the wrath of God, the punishment of God. You and I don't have to carry it any longer. That's for sure. So if you're a child of God, you can be made clean today 
through the blood of Jesus Christ and the repentance of sin. One of the great promises of the Bible, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why anybody that's in Christ is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. Jesus fixes everything. Everything. But if you're a child of God, I want you to know this this morning. Jesus is with you and Jesus is for you. Why? He's your advocate. He's on your side. When everybody else has quit on you, just know this, Jesus hasn't. When anybody, everybody else has given up on you, just remember that Jesus hasn't. When nobody else has taken your side, know this, Jesus is always on your side. Now, you might say, well, that's great because I just want to do what I want to do. It's good to know that Jesus is on my side. No. Jesus is on your side for the best for you. And sometimes that best for you is bringing you back into alignment with what he wants you to do. And that's one of the ways that he loves you and is for you because oftentimes God the Father will chastise you to bring you back to a right relationship with him. That's what God does. And so I want to encourage you today to know that there's nobody that's for you like God is for you. There's nobody that's ever pled your case the way that Jesus Christ pleads your case. There's no better friend that you have in the world than Jesus Christ if you're a child of God. And so that should bring us great hope, comfort, peace at this time. There's that little kid that was wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, a feed trough represented for us so much. He gave us the ability to be adopted sons and daughters. He gave us the ability to have our sins covered and the wrath of God turned away. He gives us the ability to have someone, that baby, grew up into be a man that bore my sins to the cross of Calvary and shed his blood for me. And that same baby now sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven and has made a way for me and my life to be directly connected to the throne of God in heaven. What a gift. But you might be here today and you say, Pastor, I've never received that gift. Today's your opportunity. If you're here today and you don't know for sure that your sins are forgiven and heaven's your home, there's never been a time, a day, a place in your life where you've been born again. Let today be that day. You need to be saved. And being saved is not joining our church or going through a class or doing religious works or doing stuff. It's about, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he's died for my sins. I believe he's the only way to heaven. I'm asking him to save me and forgive me my sins. If you would say that to God today, you can be saved like that. And your life will begin to change in ways that you can't even fathom. But for those of us that are saved, we have that same advocacy at our disposal this week. And just know this, you are never alone. You always have God the Father. You always have God the Son. And if you're a child of God inside of you, you are the temple of God. You have the Holy Spirit residing inside of you. Let's make good use of that this week. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.